Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's where W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at ShiftWheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room, all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. 
check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside Jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. See more on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that is really just procrastinating on shoveling the like epic amount of snow that fell this week here in Lancaster County. I'm your host, Amanda. This is episode 51. Kim always announces the episode number on the department, so I'm just going to try it here too. It feels very momentous. <laughs> So I'm trying to keep all of our episodes at a maximum of two hours, which when you think about it, is a lot of content. I've heard that's kind of a crazy length for some listeners, but it's really hard on my end because there's always so much to say. And so I'm going to try as best as possible to hold myself to this limit. But like I said, it's very difficult. I can do it. I just know it. So what's in this just about two hours episode? Well, the main event is part one of my conversation with a returning guest, Celicia, and we'll be talking about kids' clothes. In this half of the conversation, we'll be discussing the differences between making kids' clothes and adult clothes because Celicia has done both and how, this is a big one, the pricing just doesn't add up. Bet you're already guessing, someone's not getting paid, right? (laughs) We'll also address a letter that Elise sent me like so long ago, I don't even know when, about sexist children's clothing. I'm sorry it took so long, Elise, but as you'll hear later, this episode was pushed out many times due to circumstances beyond our control. And before that, I have a phone call with Sammy, who's the owner of Dylan Page, one of our Pegasus sponsors. She has so many good retail stories to share with you. And we'll also get to hear about why she started her own sustainable boutique. You know that I believe that small businesses are the future. So I want to highlight as many rad small businesses as possible. Because for one, it helps them reach more people, i.e. you. But also, it might inspire someone who's listening, who also might be you, to start their own good ethical business. We need more of that. I can't say that enough, especially if we're ever going to redistribute the 97% of fashion industry profits that only 20 companies are making. I swear I'm going to say that statistic all the time because it underscores how important it is that we foster and support small businesses right now. I'm going to skip the Patreon shout outs today. 
but they'll be back on Sunday just for the sake of, you know, keeping this episode in check. But if you would like to support Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more info at patreon.com slash clotheshorse. And I'll share that link in the show notes. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also send a one-time donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Now, I haven't forgotten that February is secondhand month here at Clothes Horse, and we will have a lot more secondhand content, but like content about secondhand that is firsthand, meaning not recycled content. (laughs) That secondhand content will be coming on future episodes, but my interview with Celicia was pushed out so many times that I had to do some like rejiggering of the episode schedule. As a reminder, when we talk about Secondhand Month, I'm looking to hear from all of you. Do you have a favorite thing that you like to search for secondhand? What's the weirdest thing you've bought secondhand? Do you make a living selling secondhand? Do you have any tips of your own? Do you make something cool out of thrifted materials? Reach out to me either on Instagram, via email at amanda at clotheshorse.world, or call the hotline at 717-925-7417. In the last episode, we talked about different uses for graphic tees because God knows the world's got plenty of them. And Rita, aka the Panty Witch, called us to share how she started her business. Hey, Amanda, it's Rita from Panty Witch, and I'm calling to talk about your secondhand question. I make upcycled underwear, as you know, and it all started because my partner was getting rid of a bunch of clothes and was going to donate them. And as I knew at that point, donating normally just gets thrown away. So I was like, what can we do with these? He was also on the look for some, I guess, boxer briefs is the style you call them. He was on the look for some boxer briefs. And so um, at that time, I worked at that small organic underwear company sewing for someone else. And so I was like, okay, let's take these shirts and let's turn them into some boxers see how it goes and it turned out really good the I mean depending on he's a smaller guy and likes to wear bigger t-shirts so it worked out really perfectly but um it the hem of the t-shirt works really well for the hem of underwear and it just whipped them up really really well and it was fun to put all the weird graphic logos in different places you know some superb placement um but uh, yeah I just started doing that and um that kind of turned into upcycling for underwear for myself. Um, cause, you know, every once in a while, you need some, you need some new panties, and it evolved from there. I really enjoy using upcycled, you know, shirts or pieces of fabric that I get from the thrift store or all that kind of stuff. I think it it helps like dictate what the garment's going to be and how it's going to turn out. And I don't know, I just I love the puzzle. I was actually talking with Picnic Wear on Instagram the other day. Um, about just kind of the insanity of using scraps and how it takes a long time, but it's really fun. But anyway, that's my story. Thanks, Amanda. Have a great day. Thank you so much for calling Rita. I hope you're enjoying your new house. It looks very cute and cozy on Instagram. You know, I actually love, like all caps love, the idea of turning graphic tees into underwear because there is like so much potential there. And for the most part, and I mean the most part, the fabric would be really comfortable. If you want some inspiration, you should go check out Rita's work on Instagram at panty.witch. Her work is so amazing. If you've been looking for a treat for yourself, you should get yourself some panties from Rita. 
I know, as Rita said, that working with scraps is hard, but she makes it look really good. Like these panties are a work of art, which is not a phrase I get to say very often. <laughs> if you use scraps and upcycled materials to make something special, I want to hear from you. I think that people hear secondhand and they only think thrifting. Maybe they even only think clothing, but it's so much more than that, and it includes reusing materials that already exist. There are a lot of you in our community, like Rita, who make magical things out of salvaged materials, like we've got Selena Sanders, Danny of Picnicware, Kate of Undone by Kate, of those sassy Bond sisters at Salt Hats, um, Brandy of No Flight Back Vintage. Cass of Blank Cass and Laura of Shop Journal. And I know I'm missing a ton of people here, which makes me feel really proud that there is such a long list of talented people who have really elevated the idea of upcycling. So proud of all of you. And when it comes to just hobby crafting or gift making, your town may have a store that is sort of like a thrift store for craft supplies. In Portland, there's a place called Scrap. I love it. They have everything. And here in Lancaster County, we have Lancaster Creative Reuse. No matter where you can live, you can also order fabric online from Fab Scrap. And I don't know about where you live, but the thrift stores out here have tons of fabric, embroidery thread, beads, and other findings. I also find tons of, I can't believe this, but like fully unopened, unused craft kits out there. I am almost done with a very lovely cat latch hook that I picked up right before Christmas for like a buck. And from there, I'm going to move on to making a bunch of necklaces for myself out of all these cool beads I've been finding over an extended period of time on all of my thrift adventures. But now is the time I'm excited to make some jewelry. Moving right along, I'm so excited for you to meet Sammy of Dylan Page. So let's just listen to our call. So why don't you introduce yourself? So my name's Sammy, and I started a company called Dylan Page. Our social media is Dylan Page Life and Style, and I started this because when I would look at sustainable brands, I did not see myself in them. Everything was, like, very earth-toned. Mm -hmm. It felt just, like, super airy, very whimsical, and, like, every person on there was, like, this, like, tall, really thin, like, like blonde-haired woman who was beautiful, but I look at that and I was like, that is not me. Like, I need a little bit more funk in my clothes. I need a little bit more edge <laughs> to them. And nobody will ever start doing anything better if they can't, like, see themselves and they can't, like, be a part of something that's like, you know what? We don't expect you to be 100 Like, these brands make it look like you have to be 100% perfect. And I wanted a brand that was just like, you know what? I'm really proud that you're trying. I'm really, you know – you decided to buy a glass water bottle. Like, I'm so proud of you. Mm -hmm, and I just mm -hmm. wanted to create something that, like, other people could be like, oh, I can do this. Like, and that they could just really see themselves in that. And so I always say, like, we need a group of people that are just trying to make small choices and that will make a big difference in people being, like, 100% perfect. And oh. that's why I started this brand. Progress not perfection, you know, like making these changes, it's challenging. And I think when someone's like, okay, starting today, everything I do is going to be totally different. Well, you're going to fail. That's too much for like your brain to process, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I am like a firm believer too, that sustainability looks different for everybody. Like, you know, I have family members that live in a small town and they, 
you know, may not have like the most immediate access access to things that I do. Mm -hmm. And there are people like I have a ton of allergies. Like one of my goals this year is to switch over to a detergent that's not in plastic. But like for me right now, like I have, this is what I'm using. It's like, we all are going to have imperfect things that we work towards and that it's okay that it's like, okay, well, I did this and I'm like really proud of myself. And then you just like give yourself some time and see what you could do next. And I also don't think it has to be this like constant, like chasing journey, like give yourself a moment to like, I did that. I'm so proud of myself. I made a change. Yeah. And that's like the type of community that I want to be a part of. And that's why I also love clothes horses because I feel like you give that to people that like, Hey, like, this is something new, like chew on this, meditate, it's very snackable. And it's like something that you can like implement in your life and move forward with. It's a process, but step yeah. one is like knowing why you want to do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then there's always two, like, I think the more you get into this journey, the more you'll learn like, Oh my goodness, my spices have been in like five different places. And mm-hmm. you know, your spice rack is not the first thing you're going to start with, but it could be the, something that is your, two years, three year, you know, the next thing you're looking into. So I just really love the idea of like people being able to say like, okay, this is what I can do now. I'm going to like sit with this one thing and I'm going to, you know, switch my brand of toilet paper for the next three months. And this is the one change that I can handle. And this is the one change uh-huh. that I'm going to make. Yeah. And so that's, I created this brand for people who want to make changes and not the, not for the people that are like a hundred percent perfect. Yes, I think I think that's amazing. It's a privilege to be able to do these things. Like you being allergic to a lot of laundry detergents, me too. I've had so yeah. many rashes in the past three years. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's and that's the thing for a lot of like different sort of alternative products out there, you know, like it's it's a process for sure. Yes. And I believe we can all get there. I think we can too. It takes time and you know, supporting one another and like sharing our successes, you know, educating one another. So you have a lot of retail experience and you have some really interesting stories. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So I started off at Limited 2 and I worked at Limited 2 when it transferred over to Justice. So we started carrying Justice products and then we um, went like completely over to like switch to Justice. And then I went to Delia's and then I started working for a luxury handbag brand, and then I started working for a high-end uh, boutique that was owned by a family, and then I started working for a soap shop that was also family-owned, and then I took a break from the retail world for a little bit, and I I have my cosmetologist license, so I went and did that, and then during the pandemic, I decided to start my own brand, which is one of the craziest things I've ever done, but it has been the most rewarding process because when you – like, I worked so many hours for so many other people. It just feels so much more fulfilling to be able to, like, mm-hmm. put out a message and, like, do, like, support and, like, do the things that I want to do. Like, there was an episode you said um, that, like, people who work for retail businesses, like, they make salary wages. And then you realize that you're, like, making $7 an hour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I was that person. Like, one of the stores I worked for, I would get off at 11 o'clock at night and sometimes have to be back there at 7 a.m. I think I should have slept in my car those nights <laughs> because I probably would have slept more. Yeah. Um, Seriously. So I, I'm like, if I'm, if I'm going to work that much, I might as well work for myself. Wow. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, I think 
retail is such hard work. I feel like I want to say that in like every single episode because I think a lot of people who haven't worked retail think you're just like ringing people up or something. I don't know what they think it is, but you know how hard it is. So you've worked for some places that are like major beloved favorites of close source listeners. So starting with limited two, you have to tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about that. So I worked for Limited 2 during the days of, like, Jonas Brothers and Tina Montana (laughs) and High School Musical, which was actually, like, the best time to work for them, I would have to say. Um, It was, like, very iconic when we would answer the phone. I guess, like, Jonas Brothers, like, kind of, like, sponsored, like, they teamed up with Limited 2. And so Limited 2 was considered the home of the Jonas Brothers. So when people would call, I would literally answer the phone and say, thank you for calling Limited 2, home of the Joe Bros. How can I help you? And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was my favorite way to answer the phone. I was like, I will never answer the phone any other way. <laughs> it was my favorite. And actually, the Jonas Brothers would do stops at Limited Twos. And so we knew when they were coming to St. Louis that we were like, oh, my goodness, they're like, which store are they going to pick? And they picked the store that was 30 minutes away from me. And I was crushed the entire Aww. day because I, like, begged to work that day. And, like, it was so cute. Little girls would always come in and be like, Who's your favorite favorite Jonas brother? And then they would like want to tell you about like who was their favorite. I and love then that. it was so cute. And like Hannah Montana, I swear to you, the there was like two years in a row for uh, not Christmas, um, Halloween, that every little girl wanted to be Hannah Montana, and we sold the exclusive Hannah Montana wig. <laughs> and so we little girls would come in and we would put an outfit together for them to be Hannah Montana, which. I swear she was probably one of the most sustainable Halloween costumes because the little girls were going to end up wearing the clothes that they got to be Hannah Montana in yeah. their everyday life. So that was really fun because you knew that, like, this wasn't a costume that was just going to be, like, thrown in the trash, that, like, you knew that the little girl was going to actually like, wear these clothes. Um, it was such it was such a great time. Then you also worked at Delia's, which is another, I mean, I, gosh, I have so many good feelings about Delia's. But, I mean, I would guess that when you worked there, they were probably, like, not doing as well as they had been in the past, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it slowed down when they started to open a lot of stores. So, when I was working for Delia's, that was, like, right at the time when you could tell things were getting, like, a little shifty. Um, (laughs) We had, like, like, the best way to describe it. We were having, like, a lot of, like, weird markdowns happening every week. We also got, like, oh, my goodness, the amount of graphic tees that, like, poured into that. Oh, that were, like, hot minute items, graphic tees. Like, that was, like, I feel like our graphic tees were, like, our bread and butter. Like, that's what people, like, really sought after. Um, at the time, we had Pretty Little Liars was, like, the biggest graphic tee. Oh, I loved that show, though. <laughs> yes. And so one crazy thing, though, that we would do that – we would actually, like, take the items, like, box them up, and we had this, this is totally not safe. So, like, above where our office was, you would have to put a ladder and climb up to the top of this, like, loft area, and we would have boxes of old products back there. So they would actually circulate old products. And so we were constantly, like, boxing a product, putting it away, and then, like, bringing it back. Like, I will never forget, I opened up a box, and I was like, this has to be, like, two years old, some of this product. And I was like, Oh, Where? my gosh. That is, like, giving me like, anxiety. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And then you would – so then we had to climb down this, like, very steep ladder with these boxes. It was, like, very scary. 
So mm-hmm. they, I knew, I was like, okay, why are we pulling product out? Like, why are we doing this, like, weird switch around thing? Like, we're sending product off, but then we're, like, hiding product. It, like, became very bizarre. So I was like, okay, something something weird is going on. And, like, the way the markdowns were going was, like, not, like, normal um, <laughs> for a majority of the stores. So that's when I was like, okay, something something's not right. But it was, like, very – I feel like I worked for them like right at like right at the end of their peak of things. Uh-huh. So I could really see like a change of hands like happening there. Did you buy a lot of clothes when you worked there? I mean, I feel like they weren't as cute then as they have been because like you said, it was so many graphic tees. Like I remember going into yes. Celia's outside Philadelphia in the King of Prussia Mall and being like, this is like a t-shirt store now, basically, yes. you know? So the rule was I had to wear their jeans. Like, that was, like, what you had to, but you could wear any top you wanted. Mm-hmm. So I think I, in the whole year I worked for them, like, I just had, like, a handful of shirts that I would wear. Um, so there wasn't, like, I know you guys talk a lot about work wardrobes on here recently. And so there, like, all you had to wear was jeans. When I worked at Limited 2, like, you didn't have – I probably bought more clothes from Limited 2, honestly, than I ever did at Delia's. And so – you, it, their wardrobe wasn't like you didn't have to have like the in graphic tee or anything like that. So I had like five shirts from there that I would just kind of like rotate and wear whatever I owned because it wasn't like everything was just like hot for a minute. Like you can't yeah. wear a pretty little liar's tee like after it's done. You will like this. I had a Hello Kitty shirt that I wore like religiously. <laughs> When I worked there, that was like my shirt that I wore. I was like, this is my graphic tee. This is it. And I'll just wear this one. I probably wear it like once a week. I mean, I support that decision, obviously. <laughs> so then, I mean, wow, you've like done the rounds because then you worked for, we're not going to say the name, but it is a very big luxury handbag company, right? And yes. you had, I mean, you ha- it's like funny because your retail experience checks all the boxes of all the things we've talked about on the show. <laughs> yeah. So I love actually like, you know, hearing you say it, because I think it means more coming from someone who's also experienced it. So tell us about the things that bothered you about working there. So what bothered me the most about working there was we would get in products and we would have to like make sure it like met up to their standards. And so all the bags, were mm-hmm. made of leather and it could only have imperfections. This is going to sound so gross, but it could only be imperfections that were skin related because when you're buying leather, you are buying something that's come, like, has come from an animal. And yeah. that was like one of the grossest things to me. So if anything was not up to their standards, that item had to be damaged and people would come into the store and they would really want to try and like find a way to like weasel a discount. And so they would try and, like, mark pen on the bags or try to, like, scrape them. And we, if we found it or if someone brought the bag to us and said, like, hey, can I have a discount on this, we weren't allowed to get one. We would have to try and take it to the back and see if it was something that we could clean or fix. But if we couldn't clean it, we would literally have to cut the item up and throw it into the trash, which was very, very hard. I cut up a five, I think it was over $500, like a $500 leather jacket one time. And that, like, I will tell you it was a little bit thrilling because I really wanted to do it because I never got to cut anything there. But it was, like, heartbreaking, like, the second actually I cut into it. I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, we could have given this to somebody. Like, there's nothing wrong with this. It literally had the tiniest stuff on it. And it was, oh, it was heartbreaking. With that company, so 
I worked at the outlet version of it. And something that was very disturbing is that like people would come in and they would get super excited that they would buy an item. And it was originally like $500, but it actually wasn't because you would get like a 50% off coupon when you came into the door and then an additional 20% off. And it's like that item was never meant to be sold at $500. It's not made to be sold at $500. Like the craftsmanship between full price stores and the outlet stores is very, very different. The stitching is different. The, mm-hmm. the binding for the products are different. So like if you are actually buying your bags for $150, that's the price point that your bag is actually meant to be sold at. We would get items from the full price stores that they would call the leads and we would have to actually like make this like little hidden like punch inside the bag and you would be able to then know like if it was from the factory stores or if it was from the full price store and that was just so that people weren't getting like they weren't like returning items to the full price store and getting more money back when they actually bought it at the outlet so it's just so gut-wrenching knowing that like people think they're like getting a really good deal when what you're getting is actually the price that it was really meant to be yeah, yeah. It is such a scam, <laughs> you know? Um, it is. I mean, most outlet shopping is, you know? Um, well, now you have your own business, Dylan uh, mm-hmm. Page. What made you start your own business, and how did you do it? So when I was actually managing the high-end boutique, one of – this is, like, the silliest place to start realizing, like, the difference in, like, fa- in, like fashion. So – we would get all of our products in on plastic hangers and we would have to throw all the plastic hangers away. And I got like weirdly obsessed with the plastic hangers. I was like hoarding them and like trash bags to try and throw them away. Not not throw them away, to recycle them. Uh And I was like, I had a great display window and I was like, well, maybe for a sale, I could take all these plastic hangers and paint them red. So maybe they can go into a window. Like I like became like, obsessed with like the packaging that things were coming like the way they were showing up Uh and so the packaging was the first thing that I was like oh this is really wasteful and then getting to work with reps and seeing how um like there was one company that we would work with and we would like find things we liked and then we would help them remake that product that was selling really well in our store Mm-hmm. And so, like, doing things like that or, like, um, one, thing our, one thing our owner would do was they would find products they liked and then they would go search for brands that they could then put um, a different tag on it and then they could sell it and make, like, like basically from China and pay, like, nothing for it and then sell it for a bunch of money. Like, they would uh, make new labels for it. Yeah. And I had this realization. I was like, why? Like, what is this? What is going on here? And so I started realizing, like, okay, if this top was purchased at only this amount, how much is the person making it getting paid? Yeah. And so I really started, like, looking into the tags and, like, asking a lot of questions and being like, okay, well, this product came from here. And, like, doing research on the area and, like, the factories that were around the area. And I was like, this is not right. And so – it actually, after I left that store, I started working at the soap shop and they had like, um, that's why I started like my sustainable journey and they were really into like finding different ways for like plastic, like biodegradable products. And that's what really like set me on fire. And I was like, I could do this because I had like wanted to 
start my own store, but I needed that moment to like step back and like really see like what goes into making a garment and how much somebody's actually getting paid. Like the amount of money that like, so the amount of money that I pay for my products is astronomically different. So like I can be able to look at the products that I'm purchasing and like see just from that, that like the brands I'm supporting in my store are like actually paying their company's living wages. And something I really love is that, like, um, some of the brands actually, like, when the world opens up again, that I can – there's nothing to hide for them. I can go tour their factories. I actually talk to a lot of the owners. Like, I email them constantly. And so it's really nice because there's nothing to hide. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's, like, the biggest thing is, like, there's a lot of hidden truth in the fast fashion industry where if I have a question about something, I can email the owner and be like, hey, I didn't think about this. Can you tell me more about this? And they are able to provide proof for, like, how their factories are laid out. And, like, I can ask them, like, what is what is your waste? And all these things and actually get, like, information on it mm-hmm. where other brands, they don't keep track of those things. And nor do they want you to know those no, they those don't. pieces of information. Yeah. And so knowing – you he would talk about um Tony that like I can actually like go tour their area like when the world opens up again I can go see where all their fabrics are dyed I can go watch all their fabrics be cut I can see where they source all their products I'm allowed to talk to their workers like this is something that like no one like fast fashion would never let you do this no no even for me working as a buyer there's no way I would have ever been able to just like go to a factory. It would have been a whole thing, most likely because, you know, something would have to be faked out for my arrival. And even it probably, it just would not happen, you know? No. So that's incredible. And I love Tone Lay. Like, it doesn't surprise me that you can go to their factories. I want to go to their factories. I would love to get someone from Tone Lay on the podcast. I think that brand is incredible. Yeah. Um, It's just like so many good things. Uh, I will definitely link to the brand in the show notes so everybody can see all of their amazing missions, you know? Yes. And I love that their products, like a lot of the brands we sell, like it says like who the maker is on there. If I go to their production, I can walk up to this person and say, oh my goodness, I sold the product you created. And I think there's something like so beautiful about that. Yeah. You could actually like see that person. What are some of your other favorite brands that you carry at the shop? Um, so our latest item I'm super excited about is um, Daisy LA. Is, <gasps> oh, I love them too. <laughs> I I love them, and so I have like been able to talk to the owner's boyfriend throughout the process of like to help me with some things, and they're so nice. Like I just mm-hmm. this is like the best experience ever because the people that I'm working with, like I just love them. They're it's just so exciting, and I everything's made in LA, and like their workspaces are very clean like it's so exciting to buy pieces and be like you work in a clean environment like you work in a nice place like it makes you feel so good to be able to like support these people who are doing amazing things and something I love about their graphic tees is because I know like graphic tees get a lot of harp on them but they are like beautiful creations of art and when I picked the pieces to carry into the store I was like okay if I was done wearing this, like, what would I do with it? And I am about to do a series on, like, 
I, you could literally take these pieces and like put them in a picture frame and frame them in your house. Like you could actually like cut out the shirt and frame it, or you could turn it into a pillow. There's like so many, I actually, one of the shirts we just dropped um, says create common ground. And I think it would be adorable when you're done with it to like turn it into a fabric purse because it, I just, yeah. I don't know why. That's what I see. So like the pieces that I chose with them, I was looking at them. I'm like, what could I do with them after I'm done wearing them? What could be the next? So just making sure that like all the pieces we carry are truly like a work of art in themselves. I just think it makes someone feel so proud to be able to wear. What has it been like to, you know, be a small business owner during the pandemic? It is the most wild ride I've ever signed up for in my entire life. I spent yeah. 50% of my days excited and like 25% being like, what am I doing? And 25% being like, when will this pandemic end? Um, so I know you've talked about um, some brands have like canceled their orders with factories and it's causing a lot of issues. And for me, like every company I work, I work with, they are also small brands. So mm-hmm. one of the brands I really wanted to carry and was super excited about was this candle brand. Well, during the pandemic, they haven't been able to get some of their items that they normally use to make the candles. So they were like, well, really sorry, we're going to have to cancel your order because like everything is so limited and things that they would normally get yeah. from other places, they can't. And so it's this part where like I'm a small business and they're a small business, so I want to support them. I'm like, okay. Well, I obviously can't buy your candles from you, but, like, because every brand has, like, you have to spend so much money with them in order to, like, carry their products. I was like, if I'm willing to support you, so can we, like, smudge that line? And then can I carry something else from you? And just trying to figure out ways that, like, we can support each other. So it's so sad to me that these, like, bigger businesses who have the money to, like, help these factory workers are, like, finding ways to, like, skim corners. And I'm like, I just launched at the end of November. Like, I, I'm i a little baby brand, and I can be supportive and try to find ways to work with these brands when these other people are just, like, completely, like, just letting people lose on thousands and thousands of dollars. I think it just, like, underscores what is wrong with business right now, you know? Yeah. That, like, these businesses would still make plenty of profit, it's not like if, if it were for you and, like, you're one person with a small business and, like, if you were missing a lot of sales because you had to be closed down for a month or two, like, paying for orders that you might not be able to sell could make you go into bankruptcy, right? You yeah. might not have the money for that. That is not the case with these big companies. And that's why it's just, like, oh, it's, it's like I can't even think of the right adjective for how it makes me feel, but it's it's not a good feeling. And it's, like, angry and sad and, like, disgusted, I think. Because Mm -hmm. it's just, like, where is the humanity, you know? Yes. Well, that's, like, one of the brands I work with, They um, their billing department they go through, they had to do a massive shutdown. And I was, like, when is my bill coming? And they're, like, we're getting it to you, we're getting it to you. And it took, like, three weeks, and I'm getting anxious because I'm, you know, so little. I'm, like, oh, three weeks. But, like, every week I kept being, like, is it coming? Is it coming? And they're, like, we're so sorry. Like, you know, we can only do so much right now. And, like, I just don't understand how these other people can't be compassionate during this time. Cause it's like, we're all just, we're all just doing our best. That's one of the reasons why I think the future of, you know, fashion and retail, even beyond clothes is small business, because I think that's where the humanity still lives and the compassion yeah. and the empathy and the desire 
to do things well. I 100% agree. What do you want to do next with your business? Like in post-pandemic world, like what are ideas that you have or like what's your dream? Post-pandemic world, I would eventually love to like be able to start our online. Being in a pandemic is so crazy because like so many brands, like they have that, like I can't pay $75 to have like every person do a COVID test. So like yeah. modeling and stuff like that, like I have like one model and I'll see one model for like, and I won't see another model for like two weeks. And we like stay like as far away as we can from each other, like all of these things. So like in a post-pandemic, <laughs> it's like so crazy to even think about a post-pandemic world right now. I know. My brain, my brain is so stuck on like, how can I keep the tiny bits of people that I connect with like the safest? Uh, but in a post-pandemic world, like, I would love to eventually be able to do, like, small pop-ups. I have a few friends who do one stores, and I would love to be able to do something more in person with them. I would love to do pop-ups. I would love to have our own line of clothing. I would really love to be able to expand our sizes. Right now, we carry up to a 2X. It's wild to me in the sustainable world how many brands only carry up to a size large. Oh, I know. I know. And I was just thinking this morning, too, that, like, I mean, you know, we've talked about on the show how, like, sizing is so random and inconsistent. Can we just please get our lives together on sizing and, like, do it right and offer it in more sizes? Yes. I 100% (laughs) agree. And that is something that, like, I – every brand I take on, I have to think, okay, with the brands I already have, is this size 2X? Is it the same or – close to the 2x of the other brands I carry so like I look like very in-depthly into sizes I would love to expand more into like larger sizes but at this time like they're so it is so sad how many how many brands only carry up to a large some brands don't repattern well after a large I really really try to look super in-depth in that and to make sure that our, like, the sizes that we're carrying above a large actually compare well to the 1X and the 2X that I already carry size-wise. Or, you know, like, they'll have good intentions. Like, they'll be like, we added all these sizes. And then, yeah, you look at their chart and you're like, well, yeah, I guess you carry it to 3X, but your 3X is, like, equivalent to, like, a size 12, which is not a 3X. And I think it I mean, it just further stigmatizes large sizes. It makes people have a really negative experience. It messes with people's body images because they're like, I don't know what size I am. You know, like I thought I was this size and then I got it and it didn't fit. You know, that makes people feel bad. If if there were like a way we could turn the industry off and back on again, you know, like the way you might your computer, (laughs) that would be like the first thing on my list. Can Can we just please, like, does the government need to step in and just be like, here is like a spreadsheet and it's like the grading for every size consistently. Like everyone just please follow this from now on. So at least yes. you could know what size you are. I don't know. I think it would make, I think it would make it a lot easier for brands to expand their sizing because oh, I agree. You know, they're fearful of doing it wrong, which a lot of them do. And then no yeah. one buys it because, and I've worked, I worked for a smaller startup where this was exactly our problem. We expanded our sizes. They weren't done well. They ran super duper small. People came in and gave us that like one chance to get it right. And we totally blew it. And then we had to figure out how to earn their trust back. I a hundred percent agree. I really, you saying that, like, I wish that like we could just put a pause and we all have to agree. That would make my day. I know. 
Like I look at my size and things and I'm like, okay, I'm this size and this brand, but I'm two sizes bigger and this brand. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like if we just universally say, like if you or with wise are, you know, this many inches around, this is, this is the size for those. Like, yeah. Okay. Because the other thing about all the sizing being cuckoo and inconsistent across like the entire industry is that it leads to so many more returns. And you know that mm-hmm. a lot of those returns never actually get resold to someone. They get damaged out. So like yes. it's just fueling more and more waste. And, you know, like there is a part of the government that goes around and checks to see that all the gas pumps are exactly giving out one gallon of gas, you know, yeah. or that the scales in the grocery store really are calibrated to one pound. We need to do that with clothing sizes. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I it's actually a sustainability agree. issue. You know what I mean? Like it is yeah. a sustainability issue. Like it's so crazy to me in some of the stores I work for, like a small and one top, you could be, but you'd be a large and another top. But it's I'm like, if you, if it would all just be the same, then you wouldn't have to have as much waste. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is, it would have a huge effect on so many different things just to like get it together. I agree. <laughs> I support this mission. I don't know how to go about it, but I, I agree that we, we need to tell somebody this has to happen. Yeah, <laughs> seriously, seriously, just make the chart. Everyone follow it, and then, like, we'll always know what size to buy. Now, of course, we still might buy things, and we might try them on and be like, oh, this isn't really – it's not who I am, or it doesn't yeah. – it's not, you know, whatever, and you'll return it, fine. But we'll have less of, like, I had to order this thing in four sizes to figure out my size, and then, like, they all got returned, and, like, then they went to a landfill or whatever. This is one way that we could fix that. Because when I talk about returns on Instagram especially, the comment that I hear over and over again is, like, yeah, well, I follow the size chart, and it's still never right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. I have people who message me who are, like, what size would I be in this? And I'm like, okay, what brands do you regularly wear? And then I will go on that brand's website. I will look at their sizing chart, and then I will compare the sizing chart, and I will, like, look at the measurements. I'm like, okay, this is the size that I believe you will be based upon the other brands you wear on their measurements. Just to try and help people because people, they're like, people have no idea what size they are. I've bought so many things where I'm like very careful. I've measured myself. I look at the size chart. I, you know, I count for like a margin of error. And then whatever it is comes. And like, for example, I'm just going to say this one. So I own that like strawberry dress, you know, the like viral yeah. strawberry dress. Yeah. I follow the size chart. I know my measurements. The first one I got, I couldn't even get my shoulders into it. And that was, really upsetting because I had waited yeah. so long for the stress. I had to send it back and wait three months to get a replacement. Well, by then we're deep into the pandemic. Yeah. So now I'm just like wearing that dress around the house. Oh, I would. I would totally be like breakfast in this dress. Every moment is a celebration. Like I would watch TV in it. I would do every, that dress is iconic. I would do everything in that dress. That's basically what I'm doing. I'm like, oh, we're going to Zoom with someone. Let me go put my strawberry dress on. I'm trying to yes. outfit, repeat it as much as possible during quarantine. Yeah. It was so nice to talk to you today, and I'm really excited for everyone to get to know you. Uh, is there any last thing you want to tell everyone? I would say don't ever be afraid to ask too many questions about what you're buying. Yes, I love that. True words have never been spoken. You can never ask too many questions. I actually had a girlfriend who messaged me the other day, and she was like, I don't know She's like, I have this blood mattress that has a hole in it. I can't find it. 
And she's like, I'm trying to figure out how to repair it. And she's like, I don't know what to do with it. She's like, I can't figure out how to recycle it, what to do with it. And she's like, what do I do? I go, email the company. Yeah. It's their, it's their job. Like, That's ask right. any questions of, like, what to do with the pieces. Like, they need to figure it out. Yeah. They and should be like, responsible for it. Yeah. And she was like, oh, my goodness. I go, it's not your job. It's, as a consumer, it's not our job to figure it out. Yeah. And, like, the amount of waste that comes just based upon that, like, as a consumer, like, we shouldn't have to think too in-depthly about those things. The people creating it should be the ones who have to do it. And if you want more, ask questions and, like, demand what you want from that brand. That's right. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I think that we need to, like, normalize, like, corporate responsibility when it comes to the end life of the things we buy from them. Yes. A hundred percent. I am agreeing. Well, I'm so glad I got to talk to you today. This was really fun. Me too. Isn't Sammy the best? We are already in the process of collaborating on a Patreon-only episode about dun-dun-dun, limited to. So don't worry. You'll get to hear from her again. And I just want to reiterate something that she said in our conversation. She just nailed it, you know? Don't ever be afraid to ask too many questions about what you're buying. Because like she said, we need to hold companies responsible for what they make and sell to us. I mean, companies should be responsible for what happens to something when it breaks or is no longer useful. I mean, if they were, I bet our clothes wouldn't have so many crappy cheap zippers or raw fraying hemlines. I mean, have I mentioned lately how much I just hate a raw hem? because I know it's a cost-cutting measure that just really shortens the life of a garment. (laughs) Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But when you think about it, these things, these like faulty, low-quality things would become a liability for them instead of just a depressing burden for us. Like the responsibility would be on them. Which brings me to one more thing that totally is a great sort of next talking point after what Sammy said. I'll be the first to admit that every time I reach out to a brand to ask them how much they pay their workers or where they make their stuff or what's the deal with the fabric, I feel so awkward and trollish. And it doesn't help that about a quarter of the time, someone else on the same post asks me like, why are you such a hater? You must be really unhappy in your life. You you know, you know the comments. You know, I, I talked a couple episodes back about that Bernie sweatshirt. I made the mistake of commenting on a future dust post about it. And side note, I was telling Dustin, future dust is like the Instagram account that inspired me to start my own podcast and sort of just start educating people via Instagram. And so I love Future Dust. <laughs> and, you know, Future Dust made this really great post about how, you know, maybe Bernie making a sweatshirt out of a meme wasn't such a great idea. And specifically referring to the high snobiety article that I talked about in that episode. Was that like two episodes ago? I can't even keep track anymore, guys. Anyway, I made a comment and it turned into like, Tons of people piling on about how I must be so miserable and horrible in my life. And, you know, maybe I should try donating some money instead of getting on people for buying sweatshirts. And then people were sending me really mean Instagram messages. And I don't want that kind of stuff to deter you from demanding accountability from brands, from influencers, that kind of thing. And I also don't want it to 
frighten you away from standing up for what's right. I mean, don't get me started with the word hater, which should be retired as soon as possible because it seems to be tossed around by the most horrible and least accountable people or people who are angry and backed into a corner and can't think of a better response. It's sort of, when you say hater, you're really saying, hi, I'm really defensive right now. Asking questions politely, professionally, articulately, that doesn't make you a troll or a hater. It makes you someone who cares about where and how you spend your money. It means you have compassion for others. It means that you're thinking about our planet and our people. And it means you're part of our super rad and super passionate community. And we'll all be there to support you. We're never going to change anything if we're too afraid to ask questions and call out bad behavior because we're afraid someone's going to say something mean to us or send us an ugly message. I think it's especially hard for kind, thoughtful people like us because we don't want to stress someone out or come across as a troll or anyone to feel like we're attacking them. But we have to let go of that fear because we must demand accountability. Asking questions, asking all the questions – That's just step one. And if we don't ask the questions, how else will we know what is happening? Collectively joining together to take action when we don't like that answer is step two. Whether we mobilize a social media campaign to persuade a brand or retailer to behave differently or we start a petition or, you know, we utilize the power of our money, aka don't give your money to assholes, We can make change together, but it all starts with us asking the questions. Demanding accountability is not trolling. It's not being a hater. It's wanting a better world and taking action to get there. All right. Well, now that I've given you your lecture for the day, let's just jump right into part one of my conversation with Celicia about kids' clothes. All right. Today we have a return guest, a a close horse all-star. I like that you're ooing for yourself. (laughs) Second time caller. Second time caller. It's Celicia, who you might remember from our off-price episodes, which Celicia, that feels like we recorded that like 100 years ago, but it was probably only like six months ago. It just feels like that's how my concept of time is right now. In 2020 time, yeah, a week is a week is a year. Totally. Also, Celicia and I have been trying to record this episode for almost two months, thanks to all of the USPS difficulties. Her this microphone that I was sending her was just chilling in Virginia for like a really, really long time. So here we are. We're recording it now. It turns out that Celicia has many areas of expertise, and one of them is children's clothing, which this is an episode people have been asking for for a long time. So I'm excited to talk about it with you. And I hope I can live up to the expectations. We're just going to scratch the surface. So I think you can. I, I mean, you've been wowing me with stories already. Um, do you have any like updates or things you want to tell the listeners since the last time we heard from you? Anything you want to plug? <laughs> the amount of knowledge that everyone else has is so has been so impressive where I, I feel like we need to have like a it's like a support group for, for, for battered, um, industry, industry people. I agree. We all have the same, you know, some of the same experiences and viewpoints and, you know, we're all coming out on the other end better, but, but we need each other. It's, it's funny when you, 
when you hear all of these conversations, you wonder, I assume is like, I'm, I'm addressing this to the listeners, not to you, Salisha. Why would we keep working at these jobs? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, what the hell? One crazier place than the other. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, so, you know, Salisha has a lot of experience with kids' clothes, and it's like somehow even crazier based on what we've talked about already. Um, someone asked me on Instagram, why are there so many kids' clothes and baby clothes? And I mean, the, the simple answer is it's a huge industry. Um, in 2019, so I'm citing some pre-pandemic numbers, the baby and children's clothing market was valued at $27 billion. And that was just in the United States. So that's why there's so many babies and kids' clothes, because people keep buying them. People keep having babies, too. Yeah, it seems like constantly on Instagram, I'm <laughs> seeing more and more babies, lots of twins. You have new customers every year. Yeah, yeah. These babies are having babies eventually, right? I tried to look for some data around this and I really couldn't. So this is just me like spitballing here. But the way we treat children's clothing or like the way parents look at children's clothing has changed a ton since like even you and I were kids, Salisha, where like hand-me-downs are not as prevalent as they used to be. A lot of my friends who grew up in multi-sibling households where maybe they were multiple girls, multiple boys, and they were on the younger side, they remember wearing their older siblings' clothes. All of my clothes were my brothers. See, exactly. And we were four years apart, which meant someone had to hang on to them. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's just how it was, right? I had the privilege of being the oldest grandchild, the first one, and the only girl. And so all my okay. clothes were new. <laughs> Not to brag or anything. And most, I was going to say my brother, like all of our older cousins, I'm sure tons of that stuff was 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 our cousins that my brother got. Because they're kids' clothes, and they're going to grow out of them mm -hmm. and do gross things in them and get them dirty. Totally. But that has changed. Like It's like you got to buy new clothes for your kids all the time so they look good on Instagram, and you have to like build these like color looks. Color palettes. Yeah. Color yeah. And it's got to be the head-to-toe look. I don't think that when I was a kid, my mom was dressing me to be like a reflection of her personal brand, but that's what people are doing now. <laughs> you know? My mom just wanted me to be clean. I don't want to hate on it too much. My, my my dad still has a, a predominantly children's footwear store, mm -hmm. but shoes are much, you know, they're functional. They're necessary. Right, right. But really, kids, yeah. you know, there's superfluous amounts of goods that, that kids have just the same way we do. So as we talk about a lot here on the show, generally you start your career in an area and you kind of stick there. So like you're the denim person, you're you're in sweaters. Frequently you're in kids' clothes. That's that. So Salisha's sort of a unicorn here. And kids' clothes are not my wheelhouse. I only know a little bit about it from various places where we have, for better or worse, talked about doing kids' clothes. <laughs> Thankfully, we did not. Um, and I said, like, okay, well, let's talk about it. Like, what are the ways in which it's the same as doing grown-up clothes versus kids' clothes? So let's start with, like, how is it the same? And the first thing you told me that was so interesting to me, once again, being an outsider in this, is that there's lots of knockoffs of more premium and designer kids' clothes. In the same way that adult clothes are often knockoffs of a knockoff of a knockoff. Absolutely. I was, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> good. As good. Much as I want to, and it probably wouldn't matter, but I'll just be respectful. Uh, where I think maybe the one, one of the first seasons that I worked at this very, very big public company, the design team had like Chloe, Chloe sweaters that they wanted to, that was inspiration for like the $9.99 or $12.99 sweater that we were going to make. That, that was going to be the retail price. Right. Uh, 15 right. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, okay, sure. 
no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, another thing that they all have in common is that there's just as much build or what we call make in these garments. Like, yes, a child's garment uses less fabric, but it's just as much sewing kind of, you know what I mean? Less thread, but everything's harder because it's smaller. Yeah. Like are tiny, you have to fit everything together. Um, I've never sewn kids clothes, but it, it's far more complex. I mean, it sounds really, really hard for sure. And the other thing that was interesting is that it's like the similar sort of turnaround as adult apparel. So there's still just this like constant delivery of new, 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 you know, it's fast fashion just for little kids. Yeah, two deliveries, if not four a season, we'd have spring, summer, fall, winter, and trans. Plus like all the, every holiday gets its own special thing because kids have to wear some sort of Easter, Hanukkah, Passover, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Valentine's Day, you know, mom, mom, Mother's Day, Father's Day, school, kindergarten. Oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought of that, but you know, kids have to have all these holiday clothes. People buy them for them nonstop. There's all that, like, the whole family has to wear the holiday clothes. I mean, there's a lot of disposability here, you know. If you have kids, then you know that most of the time these clothes don't even get worn until they're like worn out, you know, I mean, because kids grow constantly. So there is a chance that perhaps kids clothing is even more wasteful than adult clothing. Oh, yeah. They they never, what do friends always say? They're like, they grew out of it before they could wear I mean, it. You're like, all right, well, I'm guessing I'm going to buy you all 2T for that newborn. Yeah, exactly. I will tell you when you have a baby you have a baby shower, you register for things that you really need. And what happens is instead everybody shows up with little baby outfits because it's fun to buy tiny clothes, right? And they're all like size three to six months. You are changing this child five times a day to wear all these clothes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like they don't get worn more than once, maybe twice. It's so insane when they're that little, how fast you have to be constantly replacing these clothes. And that's a really great you know, opportunity for hand-me-downs or resale. I do like what I've seen just to touch on. I've seen some new things where smaller brands, independent brands, they're making things that can kind of grow with the kids. So it's like, oh, cuff the pants up, you know, four times and then you can, mm -hmm. you can keep unrolling them. And then when they're too short, cut them into shorts. I mean, that's so smart. You know, so at least like quirky things because clothes don't really wear out. They don't. They don't. I feel like, you know, you do reach a point when you're in elementary school where suddenly you're constantly getting SpaghettiOs all over your clothes or like <laughs> falling on your bike and ripping your pants. But like, yeah. it's a long time until you get there. And there's all these barely worn clothes in between. You also said, and this was like something I had not thought about, that there are trends in kids clothes too. It's trend focused for sure. And all of the licensing, I feel like the licensing in kids has to be four times the licensing in adult in the adult world. Yeah, it's it's I mean it's the same as I don't know, what do they put candy aisle at the grocery store? Like it's 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 an easy cash grab, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Baby Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> I love baby Yoda too, but the amount of merchandise um for kids and even I've seen like the whole family's wearing baby Yoda gear. Uh it's just it's so easy. Uh on the Cabbage Patch episode, you made a really good point of there were shows made just to sell the merch. Yeah. And if you think about, like, a lot of the stuff we watched today, you go, was that character really meaningful to the story? Or was that to make a toy <laughs> or a graphic tee? Right, right. I mean, I would say that that still happens, um, even though some of the policies around what can be sort of 
sold to children and shown to children have changed. I mean, we can even look at characters who are like educational, who have generated incredible amounts of merch and clothing, like Barney, Dora, Dora, yeah, Elmo. I'm probably missing a ton here, you know, but I don't watch a lot of children's television these days. <laughs> but uh, the licensing piece is so interesting to me, and it kind of is going to tie into something we're going to talk about in a moment, which is the pricing, because the pricing of kids' clothes, like the stuff Salisha was telling me, was blowing my mind. So we're going to get to that. But if you decide you want to make a t-shirt with Baby Yoda for a child or any of these other characters, you don't just get to put that character on the shirt. You have to pay a licensing fee. To the holder of the license, you know, I'm assuming the owner of the license for Baby Yoda is like, you know, uh, George Lucas or something, right? Disney. Yeah, Yeah, Disney. And so they're going to charge you. I couldn't even imagine what it would be. I mean, there's probably a license specifically for kids' umbrellas through some other company. So you're paying whatever, you pay a million dollars and then you have to pay probably a royalty on every unit sold. Exactly. And that is what I was going to say, because I've even done some smaller licensing agreements for much smaller celebrities and very limited collections. Nothing is nuanced as like these kids characters where literally, like you said, there's someone who has a license for socks. There's someone who has a license for umbrellas. There's someone who has a license for, you know, backpacks. Like it's Mm -hmm. so specific, but you pay a pretty exorbitant fee upfront just to use that license. And then you also pay for every single unit you make. And so you have to cover all that cost both that huge upfront payment and the royalty fee in the retail price of the garment you're selling. And then you start to see shirts for kids that are like four ninety nine, And you wonder if we already know that it's just as much sewing, less thread, less fabric, but the steps are still the same. The skill required is still the same. And we have to pay a licensing fee on top of that. How exactly is that shirt four ninety nine? That's where it gets terrifying, right? Yeah. It it's it was and it is and you know I worked for some for for a company that sold um, in mass and volume so you could sort of reason like oh the line is running twenty four hours a day so the efficiency is really high that's mm-hmm. not really I I don't I couldn't accept it because the complexity of all the bullshit that the factories or the suppliers would have to go through was mm-hmm. the same as an adult t shirt or a kids t shirt. Mm-hmm. So, and you have to factor in, you know, all of that, that cost, the, the amount of testing you need to do in, in children's wear, mm-hmm. um, not only in all the components. So the fabric, the button, you know, the, all that, and then the, the finished garment, you know, the fully sewn t-shirt mm-hmm. while you're still in development. And then when you go to mass produce it, you test everything all over again. In some cases you might have to do, you know, this gambit gambit of third-party lab tests maybe there's maybe it's maybe it's three hundred dollars you know per per blue for that one blue t-shirt sometimes you i don't remember all the regulations but you have to do them per shipment oh my gosh that that all has to get absorbed so yeah how do you sell how do you sell a shirt for 4.99 what are you buying it at or what do you what's the company paying for it i mean that's the thing the people who are making these clothes are the ones who are not getting paid here right because it is really expensive and complicated to make kids' clothing. There's no reason some of it should be as cheap as it is, just like adult clothing, right? Um, well, that's a great segue into how is making children's clothes different than making adult clothes because it is. What I thought was so interesting when you and I were talking, like preparing for this episode, 
is you talked about how the sales plan is really closely linked to population growth or not growth, you know, and that would really change the amount of, you know, inventory you would be buying into, which in a regular retail setting is not the case, right? We're not like how many teenagers are going to be existing next year? Let's plan around that, right? <laughs> no, even like talking about, I remember, you know, we'd listen in on the the investor calls and they, oh, there's a big baby boom. I forget, whatever, last decade. And the projections for the next five years were huge just because of that. I believe it. So we started talking about the cost. So let's like really get into that, you know? I think the most important headline to explain the difference in cost between children's clothing and adult clothing is that the decrease in price is not in proportion to the decrease in size. So you can't say, okay, a kid's t-shirt is a quarter of the size of an adult t-shirt. It's going to be a quarter of the price because one, that doesn't make any sense, right? We still know it has to be sewn, inspected, tested. Shipped, tagged, you know. The hang tags aren't teeny tiny. <laughs> no, they're not. Exactly. Exactly. And like they, I would say that some kids' garments are even more complex from like a trim perspective. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot more snaps and drawstrings. Well, not drawstrings. I know they're dangerous. We'll get into that. But there's a lot more trim involved. You Glitter know? and bows. and Yeah. Yes. a lot more going on. So you sent me, I'm not going to, I don't even remember the exact numbers, but you sent me some cost sheets from some stuff you'd worked on. And it blew my mind. <laughs> it's It blew my mind then too, and it still does. Yeah. So let's talk about that because basically, as far as I could tell, the cost was so low, it couldn't – it didn't even make sense to me how no. that was possible. So most of the places I've worked in my career, I don't think this is, you know, confidential information. A 50, you know, we'd want a 65, you know, that would be good, you mm-hmm. know, depending on, on what we were doing and, you know, trying to have – build value in. Right. On some of the stuff, I, I would say maybe like our overall go in average margin target was like 75 to 80% mm-hmm. because we were building everything for discount. Right. Nothing full price. I don't know. Anywhere anymore. I mean, dude, I have seen this change so much. I remember in the beginning of my career, you know, I started in accessories where we would have the highest margin for the whole company. And that's pretty standard. It might be ranging from 70 to Remember the category I had that had the biggest margin target was sunglasses, and that was 84. And that was, like, pretty wild. But then you're like, oh, sunglasses really are, like, only a dollar to make. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's okay either. But apparel would have been more like that 65, maybe 70 number. And now, after my most recent job, I was seeing stuff come in at, like, 75 on the low end, 90 on the high end, possibly even higher. And – that would be our like own in-house stuff. That was obviously not like market brands we were buying, but yeah, everything is engineered to sell on sale now. So there's, there's like a little bit of an argument where if something is very well designed and it can command a certain price, there's, there's no reason that, that a company should be able to make a lot of money off something, but that's right. not the case here. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really important full, too. Full court press of, hammering suppliers of this is what it needs to be. It cost this last year. It has to be cheaper this year, which I'm not a mathematician, but that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know what, you know what I was thinking about last night that I'd, I've never talked about on the podcast, but like when I look back at my career and like when I think the turning point happened for the kind of brands that I work for, that suddenly we were like going bonkers for margin. It was 
during the 2008 recession, which we have talked about on here before as being like the origin of all of this like deals, deals, deals culture. And I remember, I remember at that point, that job, we were, we were targeting like, you know, that 65 margin on clothes, maybe a 70 in the best case scenario, like on a, like on a t-shirt or something. Mm-hmm. Well, our sales were lower than they, than we were like missing our sales plan, but the company um, had a very strong desire as a publicly traded company to maintain their profit level so they could keep their stock price high, pay dividends, mm-hmm. the usual stuff, right? So the GMM of the division I worked for made us all go out to all of our vendors. This reminds me so much of COVID. I can't believe I haven't talked about this before. Made us go out to all of our vendors for every single PO that was on order, whether it was already made on the boat. Received? Yeah, like maybe at the warehouse, but not received, meaning like put away. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the early stages, whatever, for the rest of that year. So I want to say about six months of delivery. And I, I cannot underscore enough how hard we would squeeze vendors on pricing. I like. I, how many times in your career did you hear, just see what they can do? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, hey, well, we need to – I mean, and I would train people in this where I'd say like, hey, we need this to come in at 20 to meet our target, so ask them for 12. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. Anyway, so we've already squeezed these suppliers for every cent. It is a recession. Shit sucks. We were required to call – and I remember this was the thing you were supposed to call every single vendor – and ask them for a blanket 20% discount on every PO that had been issued and would be issued for the balance of the year. And just cause. Just cause. And I remember that day being so ugly because if you were not on the phone, visibly on the phone, the GMM, who was a total asshole, and I'm not ashamed, I'm not not going to say this, I'm not gonna edit this out. He later went on to run J. Crew in the into the ground and has been ousted from there. He would come around to your desk and scream at you and humiliate you in front of everyone if you were not on the phone. And I specifically remember him coming to my desk at 3 p.m. and doing that. And I was like, actually, I already made all the calls. I have all the agreements and I'm updating the POs right now. I just saved, you know, $75,000 from all my categories, you know, like that kind of thing. And then he was just like, well, whatever. All the rest of you should be like, calling on the phone or anyway, whatever bullshit. And I still think back to that day and I have such a sense of like shame and sadness for calling all those people and asking them for a 20% discount, especially on stuff that was already made. I've had to, yeah. I mean, I've had similar experiences with lots of companies with the, well, just see what they can do. Yeah. And yeah. for me, I like some, some things for me have to be black and white of what's the target. Dude, I know. I hate that. I hate that. I <laughs> see what they can do. I'm just like, Here's the target. What do you like, want? I hate. I hate that. What do you want? The hope there is that they will come in so much lower than you needed without you asking. And I, I refuse to play that game. I will Those tell are you the best bosses, right? Yeah, totally love it. That year that we that we had to go out and ask for that twenty percent discount. I'm assuming this was 2008, but it may have been 2009. The company had a record profit level. A company that had been around for. I would say more than 30 years at that point, in the midst of a devastating recession, had a record high profit that year. So gross. Because of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that that is where it all began, where it was like, you know, what we just need to do is not pay very much for anything. And then we'll always make a lot of money. <laughs> you know. And so this is what has happened to fast fashion. And we talk about that a lot. But 
kids' clothes are in the same boat. Like, I feel like you were sending me sheets for leggings that had to be $2 or something like that, where I was like, I don't even, I don't even understand it. Yeah, because we're, we're, we're building it to, or we were building it, but whatever. Retail is $19.99. They know as soon as they put it, I think we would even tag it with the sale price, probably, because that's what you do for mm-hmm. off prices, you know, um, compared to. But I, uh, I don't know that anything ever hit the store at full price. I mean, what does now? Because everything's, you know, buy three, whatever, coupons and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> there's, there is, there's coupons for, for children's wear, right? Don't all the chains? Oh, for sure. Okay. For sure. When I think about the biggest clothing chains I know for kids, when you walk into their store, it is confusing. Like even, I think if, you know, like Old Navy has a massive kids business, I would assume that that is a big driver for them. All the signage and promos are so confusing in that store. I've been in an old navy like maybe three times because it's it's like a madhouse. It's a, like the fun house at the at the fair. <laughs> um, it's so intense. But I mean, that's how a lot of these kids brands are. And if you think it was a race to the bottom for adult clothes, adults want to pay even less for kids' clothes. You know, mm-hmm. and like the kind of volume you were talking about with me, like what would an average order? size B for like a pair of leggings for kids clothes I remember colorways of things that were like you know 50,000 pieces for a black short that blows um, my mind we would take it to a level though where we would be negotiating on the cost of cotton wow so and then we would go out and we'd hedge we'd say this is the price we agreed to we're gonna buy 18 months worth of cotton Put that, turn that into yarn and hold it for us. And we're going to use it at this price. Wow. And some of that stuff was stuff that I had never experienced before. Cause most places you're like picking the fabric and the color, like, you know, within that, that calendar season. Yeah. But I guess if you're and, planning your sales off of the number of children in the world, then yeah. you don't need to be nervous about what your sales are going to be next year. Maybe think of like pork bellies and <laughs> um, trading places. Cause I was working on it and I had to hedge. I had to go out on the hedge for the cotton. <laughs> So yeah, you're getting to that level. And if we would be threatening suppliers to pull programs and you're talking about like a 5 million unit, you know, program and we're going to pull it if you can't hit this make-believe price that's lower than what you made it for last year, even though we added a bunch more stuff to it. We have new requirements and different packaging and you have to pack all this stuff this way for this store, for e- for this e-com, you know, DC, and you got to pack it all this way for the store and then pack it all this way for the other customer. Uh, it was, it, it never made sense. And then we hit the target and the VP, it wasn't good enough. We had to surpass it. For the next year. That's what I was going to say. This is the weird thing about this business that when you step back and aren't in it every day, you're suddenly like, this doesn't make any sense to me. So if you have a recurring program, which in kids' clothes you kind of do, right? You're like, you're running the same overalls, the same leggings, you're over here, right? Yeah, graphic tees, the same body, sure. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. In adult clothes, depending on where you work, there might be less of that. Some stuff is more trend-based, but like if you worked at a place that sold lots of basic tees and whatnot, you're going to be running the same stuff mm-hmm. year after year, right? No matter what, the price for next year has to be lower <laughs> than the price this year. Even as we know that the cost of living increases every year in the world, that gas prices might go up, that there might be a terrible drought and all the cotton dies and fabric prices mm-hmm. go up. Or, I mean, it, there are a million other things, right? That price still better be lower next year. Yep. 
and like not just a penny lower. We're talking like substantially lower. Three percent. Like we wanted, we need to be down three and a half percent last year. Based on what? Yeah, is that crazy? Is that crazy? And you think about it, like okay, doing the basic math, like if something started at a hundred dollars, this is like just you know back of the notebook math. Okay. So the next year it's $97. Okay. Well, the next year it's about 94.30. And then the next year it's like 91. And you see how over a period of 10 years, the price becomes- You're just talking about wages now. (laughs) I know. I know. It's like what? It it makes no sense. And especially like, we're going to talk about this more. Kids' clothes are so much more complicated because- of all of the testing, all the safety stuff. Um, you know, it's harder to sew tiny clothes. There's lots of weird trims. It's just really, really complicated. And I would say more. it's more expensive to make a kid's shirt than an adult shirt, even if you're using a lot less fabric. It just doesn't make any sense to I me. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a lot less expensive. I mean, you, they say, I don't know, 60% of your, your FOB is usually fabric usually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that would save you. That would save you. Maybe, yeah. maybe instead of two bucks on fabric, it's 60 cents on fabric, but it's, it's not proportionate to, you know, to anything that's logical of the retail price. And for listeners, um, FOB is the cost of making it, but not like shipping it, not duties. You know what I mean? Like that's going to be your final landed cost just for all of you who don't work in production. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the price it costs to make it while it's still at the factory. Yes. Before it comes here. Um, yeah, I, I, so I guess in that way it is cheaper, but like not like proportionally in terms of like the difference between an adult t-shirt being 40 or $60 and a kid's t-shirt being four ninety nine. you know, it, exactly. it like, it just doesn't make any sense. So there's kind of no way that the workers involved are being paid a living wage, like at all. Absolutely. You know? It's not possible. You, you made a good point, which, I mean, I think applies to a lot of things now, that the entire industry is built on margin, not the actual value of an item. Sure, because there's companies that have tried, right? Everlane mm-hmm. tries to be transparent. Right. And I think it's a good story of at the end of the seasons, it's like, pay what you want. If you pay us this, this amount of money goes here. But they still, I, don't, I could be wrong, but I still don't think there's anywhere that, that they come clean and say, uh, across the board, we, we sell at a 40% markup. Right. I think they just go, we're giving you the real, the good price, not the other price. (laughs) So one thing you did say that I thought was really interesting too, is that you kind of carry the same style through each size group. So like baby, toddler and kids, Mm -hmm. but you change some details around based on the age group. I was even looking. Yeah. So what was I looking at? I don't know, some kids' pajamas, not even a company I worked for, but, you know, the baby's uh, little onesie zip thing, mm-hmm. and the neck size up is, um, you know, separates, but I don't know, a tween, that's still a term, is probably not going to wear the same exact uh, fit style that, like, a five-year-old's going to wear, the same with, you know, a, a one-year-old, but it would be, you know, the same look and the same style, so you can have all those pictures together. Yeah. <laughs> It's important, right? <laughs> it would get goofy. There would be there'd be some interesting debates with um, design teams that that doesn't seem appropriate for like an eight year old to wear, or, or or the or why does the style actually go all the way up to a kid size twelve? That's like a, you know, if you're petite, you can fit into a kid size twelve, and some of the 
I guess kids are bigger, so it's not, none of this is probably fair, but pretty, you know, kind of dorky and not, not the right maturity level. Dude, I, I get that. You know, I had to wear kids clothes until I was well into high school because I was so short and just such a late bloomer. And those clothes look like baby's clothes. Okay. It was embarrassing and people would make fun of me. So I get what you're saying. Like, it seems weird for some of these, some of these clothes are some of these styles, I guess I would say are too babyish. To be worn by someone who is like wearing a kid size 12 or 14. I would, the only other, you know, just to be fair, is there's taller, you know, kids that are really tall for their age or bigger. So, you know. Mm-hmm. And you don't want them to look yeah. like, you know, adults. So I get that. It's it's t- it's it's a tough line. But generally, like some of the, the graphic tees and, the, and the, the verbiage, the wording, just daddy's, you know, daddy's little princess. <laughs> you don't need a 10-year-old or 12-year-old to wear that. I mean, you know what that makes me think of? Uh, in the early aughts when kids stores, like, like there was that Abercrombie for kids. I don't know. Was it just called Abercrombie or something? And like justice, which may have still been limited to then they were getting in a lot of trouble for selling like sexy clothes to little girls, like ultra low rise jeans, thong underwear, padded bras, weird halter tops and stuff like that. Like they were sexing up kids. And that I remember going into a like it was either a justice or a limited to around that time and being like horrified. It was like so sexy. It was weird. I feel weird saying those words in the same sentence, but it was really, really appalling. You're in there and your son or daughter sees something and they grab onto it. How do you explain that it's, you know, not not appropriate or, you know. Right. How how do you explain that? That's a big conversation to talk to your eight-year-old about why you don't want her to wear thong underwear. You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad I haven't had to have that conversation with anyone. It's it's so weird, but, like, that's what was happening. I remember there was a lot of drama going around the internet about this, you know? I have a couple questions about kids' clothes and how they might be different than adults or I don't know, but one of them is how do you fit kids' clothes? Like, do you have – fit models come in and try them on? Do you do all those fittings or is it just like we do these same thing over and over again? We don't need to like do anything special here. So there's definitely, you know, dress forms, fit forms, mm-hmm. and they, you know, even a baby size range is the shapes of babies are change from, you know, three months to, to what's the next 12. Yeah. And so there would be dress forms of all the incremental sizes, not just, Oh, the kid sample size is usually, oh, I don't remember what it was, eight. Say it's eight. Okay. Um, they'd have fit forms for, you know, the four. Um, and then, you know, I don't know, every couple of sizes just because kids, infants, humans, the shapes <laughs> of humans change so dramatically. Like the size of, I think this is, I, don't know, I think this is accurate, but the size of your head at birth doesn't grow proportionally with the rest of your body. So toddlers are so adorable because their heads proportionate to their body are so big mm-hmm. um like how you know little dolls look the same so fit forms there would also be models i was never i don't think i was ever at a single fitting because there was very different rules um the amount of time you know you can't you can't have a uh, like a two-year-old <laughs> in like a marathon four-hour fitting where they're not allowed to go to the bathroom and you don't offer them any water so wait these are children who are actually coming in and yep. putting on these clothes and having like what we would think of as a fit session. I'm sure they were through agencies and the parents wow. would bring them. Um, and I do remember, you know, 
had a pretty huge tech team and they had many, many um, little fitting changing rooms. There were diapers there. And I don't know if the diapers were just for having to change the kid or because you had to fit the clothes with diapers on. Oh yeah. That's a good point too. I've never, wow. you know, I don't know if they would put them on the dress warms too, or maybe they were just built a little heavier, larger. I mean, I'm just imagining, you know, cause when you go to a fitting, you know, for an adult brand, it's terrible for everybody. It's like they're ripping everything apart on the person and pinning yeah. them and like drawing and, and everyone's poking and looking. Yeah. And, and it's really, it's kind of weird, actually. It's intense. It's really hot because you always have the lights on so everybody can see. Yeah. Yeah. And so just imagining like a little two-year-old up there or something trying on. <laughs> and the designer doesn't really like it. And yeah. Like fuck with everything. Yeah. I know. That's – I. it had like just occurred to me that that would be a problem there. So you do have fit models. Okay. Yeah. To be fair, I don't think that they would – have the same sort of process i think maybe they'd have the baby you know kid fit models come in maybe like once a season like maybe maybe they would fit everything on forms you know for Mm -hmm. the first or the second um i don't know that they had you know like babies had to come in and fit the same stupid proto like four (laughs) times um which reminds me of a photo you sent me do you just want to tell the story i'd love to so you know very talented design team and a little bit disconnected from, you know, kids clothes have to be functional. Yeah. There's no other way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really important to call out. And like, there are tons of adult clothes that are not functional at all that you have to like tape your body into, Mm -hmm. you know, and all kinds of other weird stuff. But like, that's not an option for children. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of requirements, um, child safety of like the neck opening, Makes sense. Um, so it's not too tight. You can get it over your head, and there's enough neck stretch. So if you get like stuck in it, etc. Um, and depending on the country, I think there might actually be standard um, measurements that you need to fall into for different sizes. Mm-hmm. So design would make lots of stuff that maybe didn't, it wasn't thoughtful about the size of the human wearing it. So we had some, I had a long sleeve style, knit style, so stretchy. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of screen prints all over it, some of which were stripes on the sleeve, like in the bicep. And like lots of our listeners um, probably are experienced when you try to print a light color on a darker fabric, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. So you have to use, like if you want to put white stripes on something black, um, you have to use a lot of, a lot of ink, Mm -hmm. a lot of, to, to have coverage. And then another challenge is when you have stretchy fabric, when you print on it, um, it, it can break, right? The, like it can crack. Yeah. Like it'll look like cracked paint. So a lot of times you want to, you know, it's really hard to print white stripes on a black fabric that's very stretchy, that's in an area of the body that, that moves a lot, like the, the arm, the bicep. So the factory were very, you know, a lot of times working with suppliers, they're very gentle. Like they don't want to make accusations. Um, And they would say, Hey, are you sure the specs are right? So the measurements you go, yeah. Yep. I checked the, they said they're right. That's what they want. Okay. And the, the factory's like, I don't, it's not looking good. It doesn't seem like they're the, the print isn't good. You guys wanted it to be white. Um, Can we change the technique? It's like, no design said, no, they don't want to change it. So this was escalating. To the point that 
the factory emailed me pictures of a baby wearing a sample and you could see how tight the stripes were on the arm because the 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 screen print had to be so thick to get solid white on black mm-hmm. that it was it was indented like it was and we're so tight it was like cutting off the little baby's arm and upon receipt i just had so many questions of not even about the print and, and that but where did that baby come from i know like we whose kid is that does the baby work there is was the, it on standby yeah is it an employee uh and it looks the baby was crying yeah, the baby was having a bad day at work and I'm like, is that baby sitting in a puddle of its own tears? What's happening? And there was a couple pictures. And, the, you know, the factory uh, three times before that was trying to, you know, tell us this isn't a good idea. It's not going to work. To the point where they put this on, you know, this, this sweet baby. Or I don't whether the baby worked there. I don't know. The baby's arm looked like it was in pain. It was, yeah. And the baby crying. And that's what I had to go take the design to show them. Okay, are you now ready to, to change um, some part of this? And what was the decision? Did they? Or they were like, nah, it's fine. I mean, they probably said it was fine. They probably said, oh, they'll fix it in production. Oh, classic. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, just have them fix it in production, whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, that was gotten a lot of crazy pictures from, from factories where they're trying to illustrate to you, you know, an issue when you just don't want to accept it. So that was that was a powerful message of like a little baby crying in pain. Yeah. Because the the pajama top was too tight. It was sad. I mean, I've seen the photo. It really it, was. it really upset me. I mean, I am also like, does this baby have to do this all day? Is this baby yeah. always being jammed into clothes? Like how much does the baby make? Who knows? Do they have benefits? It makes sense though, because throughout my career, you know, you'd get random photos of of people, um, whether in the factory or like in the in the office trying stuff on and 99% of the time, it wasn't them sending you a picture because they liked it. It's because there was something really wrong with what mm-hmm. you asked for. Um, <laughs> like your merchant, like, you know, your your factory or your office merchandisers didn't just take stuff and say like, I love the jacket. They're like, this doesn't fit any human. Like, how did you expect this line to match this other line? And I don't know, maybe the baby, maybe there's like a nursery on site just so they can try try on the clothes i know? need to know i need to know where do these babies come from i mean i know where babies come from but these professional babies you know professional and, overseas factory fit model babies yeah it's it's so interesting to me and it's it's funny like hearing the story about the stripes was giving me like flashbacks to terrible nonsense doomed product i've had to work on but it made me think of the next thing which is like you were telling me how your buyers would, you know, go sample shopping. This is what buyers do sometimes. No, we don't do it very often. We're mostly doing paperwork, but where you go out <laughs> and buy really expensive samples and bring them back and are like, okay, so like in the adult world, you may be like, I just came back from Stockholm and I bought this sweater for $500. And what I'd like us to do is be able to make our version. It's always our version, right? For $48. And you're like, uh, like that's the kind of stuff you work on. I really on. like this fabric. I don't want to change it. Yeah. And yeah. Oh man. The amount of times it's been like, okay, well, we have to change it. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Make some changes to so change it. And then you show it to your boss and they're like, that doesn't look like the original inspiration. And it's like, yeah, right. Because if it did, we'd be copying, you know, <laughs> classic. But you said that that happens in be- in kids clothes too. And that, I mean, in one end I was like, oh, what a relief. So many other people have to deal with this nightmare of inattainable goals but on the other hand i was surprised you know or even graphics like a prints and graphics especially because 
you have to, one, don't copy other people's stuff. Like somebody else worked on that somewhere. Don't do your version. If you ever have to say, this is my version of that, it's not a good, it don't stop, start over, do something else. And I'm sorry for all the designers out there that, that end up being in these positions, but you're like, oh, we only have to change 20% of it. (laughs) And it'll pass legal. You shouldn't even, nobody should have to be put in that position. No, I know. Isn't that such a bummer? That is such a bummer. I mean, I've been to like buy meetings where the buyer hangs all the styles she's ostensibly buying. And I say she, because I've only worked with women buyers so far. Uh, She hangs it all up on the wall and we're going through style by style. And then you realize that like half the styles on the wall aren't even actually things that are on order yet. Yeah, they're totally, they're the bought samples. And you're like, uh, what, what? So this delivery is three months from now and you have this bought sample on the wall that is somehow going to turn into this final product that is 20% different and about 80% less expensive. Like, how's that going to happen? Yeah. I've been, you and I probably sat in that same room at some point in time. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, you can picture the grid, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. I know. Yeah. The fishbowl. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. The fishbowl. Um, so yeah. So it turns out, I mean, I didn't know this until you told me that like in the kids world, the same thing is happening. They would come back. I mean, uh, in Paris, like on buying trips or for kids' or, clothes or Japan, and we were it wasn't like this is mass market, it wasn't like a really high end indie, you know, cool brand. Uh, this is you know, mass market that's sold everywhere. That you know, even you would buy groceries that's sold there. So you're like, oh, you Stella McCartney dress, okay, sure. <laughs> you want to do it in Angora too? Yeah, no problem. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, for, for for kids, but we're gonna need it to be nine ninety nine, and an eighty percent margin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I it's, yeah. Well, I I mean I can't even imagine the kind of changes you would have to make to get there. Well, we didn't. We touched on safety a little bit, mm-hmm. but definitely a lot of safety safety um, regulations guidelines. So a lot of the changes would come from just just from that. So draw cords, zippers, buttons, snaps, um, anything that could come off, you know, anything that wasn't just fabric and thread, mm-hmm. we needed to be cognizant of how that could injure, injure, in, injure a kid or injure a baby mm-hmm. choking on it, getting, I don't, I don't know if you were actually able to find any, um, evidence of this, but we would always hear about entanglement or like a kid's kid wearing a hooded sweatshirt, the draw cord gets, gets stuck in the school bus door as they're getting off and the school bus drives away. That was something that <laughs> probably heard this story, you know, two dozen times. It's like, did that ever really happen? I know, but these are the things you have to think about. But these are the things, yeah. So we had, there's a lot of requirements. Um, so that's where a lot of the changes would come from. Mm-hmm. And then like proportions, just because toddlers' bodies are, you know, really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kids grow, you know, height-wise in in different size ranges, more so than they grow out. Makes sense. So that would be a lot of it. And also then like, oh, you have to find like the cheapest fabric possible, depending on if it was uh, sleepwear or not, did it pass, you know, fire safety, um, which I'm, I'm sure we're going to oh, dive into oh, yeah. give some good, good information. <laughs> so a lot of the changes, you know, I, I guess were functional mm-hmm. um, and then just price. Yeah. I mean, definitely. That's where it comes to, like the cheapest fabric you can find. 
you know, because it does seem based on what I was reading that a lot of these like functionality changes can end up being kind of expensive. Yeah. You know, like it was like, for example, you can't have a drawstring on children's clothing, but you can have a fake non-aspirational drawstring. <laughs> yeah. So, and then it's actually more work because you're not just, you know, looping through a draw cord in the, the hood of your sweatshirt or jacket. You have to tack them down and then you have to hide it. You can only have a certain length um, loose or like exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that's more time. So a listener, Elise, sent me a message about kids' clothes. And this was her question, which you're going to answer, Salisha. I know you've talked about how most kids' clothes are fast fashion, but I worked at a Carter's for a summer in college, and every day while I was folding baby onesies and kids' t-shirts, I'd be fuming over the heteronormative and sexist things on the clothes. It's so toxic. Even if they can't read, I feel like there's something so harmful for society to be putting a literal baby in a shirt that implies they should be concerned about how their baby butt looks. Fast fashion graphic tees are questionable in general, but kids' graphic tees make my blood boil. Anyway, I just thought I'd share another way fast fashion is like polluting our minds. And I wanted, I mean, you already said daddy's little princess, but I wanted to get your insight on that because after I read this message and started looking online, I felt really, really upset. I was so uncomfortable. I managed uh, graphic tees of which we made so many and I would be so uncomfortable. You know, like we'd go through like product presentation. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and either it was like reading off. I don't know if I stood up there and like held up each graphic. I might have, and then design could make a comment. You know, we go through them quickly. Or I was like reading them off a line sheet. Uh-huh. But they'd be like, pretty like mommy or daddy's little princess. And maybe I'm um, not typical, but I, they were so creepy. I think it's creepy. It I really creepy. I, I have seen a onesie that says, does this onesie make my butt look fat? And I'm like, Weird. I I looked when we were talking, and mm-hmm. I found some, you know, at a, at a from a bunch of different companies. Daddy's Daddy's Lucky Charm. Daddy says I am not allowed to date ever. You know what this makes me think of? That woman. I don't know if you've seen her interview with Gail King, but the woman who yeah, Daddy, the Daddy, yeah, hat. the Daddy Hat woman. Uh, I just hate that word. <laughs> and and the pretty like mommy. What else does it say? Um, sorry, boys. Daddy's my Valentine. And then when I looked at the boy stuff, it's like, oh, I'm loud. I'm I'm a tough guy. Or mommy's tough guy. And, you know, handsome like dad. And I'm an astronaut. There were a few um, uh, inspirational girls tees that maybe a couple years ago wouldn't have had a doctor or, um, you know, uh-huh. a president or other things on them. So there were a couple, but the boy stuff all was like, I'm the troublemaker. And the girl's like, I'm a pretty princess. Oh my God. I, t- I just Googled kids tees and it's really funny. There is one that is for boys. It's marketed for boys and it's a, it's like slime green and it's got a monster truck on it. And it says tough dude. There you go. Yeah. I and mean, it's like so classically like the nonsense you see out there. It's, it's, it's so ridiculous, but I guess it sells. It's interesting to me. I mean, obviously you and I are part of it, like, you know, we kind of live in a liberal bubble, at least like socially, uh-huh. right? Um, maybe not geographically, but like, you know, we see our friends putting kids in t-shirts that are like, I'm a feminist and, you know, here's a Ruth Bader Ginsburg shirt or something. But it does seem like old, stale gender roles are the rule in kids' clothes. Even, I mean, every the colors, right? Uh, Every, yeah. Everything. Everything's pink for the girls, blue for the boys. Just like a little mold. And it's so different now, but like the different kinds of toys that there are. 
I don't think clothing's caught up. Mm. I mean, I don't even think t- toys have completely because even if you can go to a place like Target, which I do think is a lot more progressive about gender roles than a lot of other retailers that have kids' clothes and toys, there's still a pink aisle that's like all dolls. Like maybe it doesn't say mm-hmm. girls' toys, but it's – there's there's a vibe going on there. You know what I mean? It's better than it used to be, but it's not there. And Legos and Playmobil, I think, have probably done – great jobs but there's still a little bit something where like oh the girls lego set is, has a bunch of flowers nothing wrong with yeah. that but there's yeah. already something like there's a little hint there is there is they've done they've done better i do think like i mean even when we talk about toys the past couple of years i think that they have been doing a better job of making toys you know not getting rid of types of toys but saying like you maybe you want the lego set that comes with flowers or maybe you don't it has nothing mm-hmm. to do with you being a boy or a girl but i think about yeah. like when Dylan was small, that was a really like extra super like stale old gender roles being reinforced even more era for toys and clothes. And I remember one thing of that era is that like all of the characters that were like targeted towards girls when you and I were little, like Strawberry Shortcake and uh, My Little Pony and whatnot, they were like sort of rebooted to be really sexy. And <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, I feel weird saying out loud, like, that the new My Little Ponies, they were sexy. They were, like, flirty and had big eyelashes and big eyes, and they were, like, thinner. The ponies were thinner and, like, wore high heels and stuff. It was weird. There was, yeah, there was, like, tough girl dolls with attitudes. Bratz. Yeah, I feel like Bratz was successful, and then they were, like, oh, shit, we got to make My Little Pony and and Strawberry Shortcake (laughs) sexy and tough, too. <laughs> and Rainbow Bright, like they all were rebirthed as this like new. They changed her like portions where she got yes, a new form. Exactly, exactly, and it was just like sexier and flirtier. So, I mean, I hate that this is still a thing that happens in kids' clothes. And I, the only advice I can give to anyone is just like don't buy it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> some of the pictures that Slisha shared with me of these horrible like Daddy's Lucky Charm shirts. They're $4.99. These shirts are $4.99. That is bonkers to me. That means in the best case scenario, all the workers who made that t-shirt, they all in total made 16 cents to make it and pack it and screen print it and everything else. Also, Daddy's Lucky Charm has gold lettering on it. It's really terrible. Yeah. It's um, (laughs) St. Patrick's Day, you know, kiss me on Irish green. Of course. Got to have it. Gotta have the holiday clothes. But all that stuff, yeah, it's beyond disposable. The thing is, it's like technically not disposable because it's gonna sit in a landfill for a million years because it's so plastic. But not catch on fire. Yeah, but not catch on fire. It's the most important thing. It's really awkward when you're wearing your daddy's Lucky Charm shirt and you catch on fire. It feels so good to be reunited with Celicia. I'm already like, what? topic can we cover together next, you know? She'll be back in Sunday's episode to talk about the somewhat sketchy, and this would be like the understatement of the century, ill-advised laws about children's clothing safety. And spoiler, it will make you really angry. So you're not going to want to miss that, right? In the meantime, if you have thoughts about kids' clothes or other questions that you want answered, reach out to me and I'll see if Celicia can help me answer them or I will track down the answers somewhere. I also want to hear what all of you parents are doing with your kids' outgrown clothing or any tips and tricks that you have for making clothes last longer or tracking down secondhand kids' clothes. I get a lot of questions about that and my kid is 
is like not a little kid anymore. So I don't have a lot of like current answers. And I know everything is super complicated in the midst of the pandemic. So I want to hear from you. I want to share as much info as possible with our listeners because, you know, that's the great thing about community. Well, there are a lot of great things about our community, but one of them is that we can share our knowledge with one another, making us all smarter and therefore more powerful to make change. It's so magical. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell your friends because we're all influencers. So influence some of your friends to come and listen to Close Horse. It's already working. Thanks to everyone who has shared our content, recommended us on Instagram, commented on our posts. I love it. It hasn't grown old yet. If you're missing out on all of this, I mean, you are missing out. So you can join in on all the Close Horse fun on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. As a reminder, you can reach out to me anytime for any of the sources I use for the information I share here or on social media. I also just want to ask again, if you have a story about Etsy or something really important about your experiences selling on Etsy to share, please reach out to me. I will be writing that episode probably in about another week. So get your information in now. I want to hear your stories. I've never sold on Etsy, so this is like totally a new world for me. So the more I can hear from you, the better job I'm going to do. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, or a story to share, please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's also what we call the old-fashioned way. That's email. Why does email seem so old-timey? I don't know, but it does, right? Anyway, that's Amanda at clotheshorse.world. And I just want to remind you that the Clotheshorse blog launches on Valentine's Day, which is like, I don't know, a week and a half from now. It's not too late for you to get involved though, because we'll be needing new content constantly. So don't worry if you missed our first info session. We're excited to bring you in now. If you're interested, please email me. And it's really important that you email me because if you DM me on Instagram, I'm going to ask you to email me. (laughs) It just, we have like a process in place for sort of getting, you know, submissions through the queue. And it's really important that it starts via email. Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. We are getting a lot of new members lately. It's pretty exciting. I'll share a link in the show notes. Also, I have joined Clubhouse. I'm sort of waiting for more of you to arrive there, but I applied for a Close Horse club on Clubhouse. So when we get approved, I think there's a queue for it. Uh, I'll let you all know. I was thinking we could have like a weekly, just hour hangout session to talk about, you know, episodes, what's going on concerns we have, that kind of stuff. So stay tuned for that. If you need a new podcast because you're running out of TV (laughs) and books, well, you'll never run out of books, but if you're running out of a way to listen to people talk, then you should check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. And we are in the midst of a, I think it's going to be a lengthy series about the 2000s. And in this week's episode, we're talking all about hipsters, including American Apparel, Terry Richardson, Vice Magazine, and all of those graphic designers. (laughs) I will share a link to it in the show notes. 
Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White, aka my husband, for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 